Chris, I'm so excited to be sitting with you here today. Uh, seems like yesterday, but it's been a very long time since I first met you around the middle of 2015. It was summer of 2015, and you had just been arrested in a large methamphetamine distribution conspiracy, and um, I became your attorney, and that's how we met. And I think your journey is inspiring to many uh, men and women who could be in this situation facing a daunting federal sentence and trying to figure out, is there hope on the other side? You started off as a student athlete and you were successful. You played internationally. Talk to us a little bit about your background before you ended up in a situation where you were fighting an addiction and now you're fighting the criminal justice system. So before I was facing my federal sentence, uh, there were very high hopes for me. I was a student athlete. I was very gifted. You know, I played basketball. Basketball was my strong suit. Uh, I was heavily recruited by Division One colleges. It's kind of hard to tell because we're sitting, but how tall are you? I'm 6'8". You're 6'8". 6'8", yeah. yes. So I was heavily recruited as a Division One prospect for uh, college basketball. And uh, I ended up signing a uh, scholarship to the University of Idaho. And it was at the University of Idaho where I decided uh, I decided to experiment in drugs. It took me on a less desirable route than I would have ever imagined. Um, but at the time, it was like this awkward exploratory moment in my life where I was doing the right thing in the wrong way. I was trying to figure out who I was and, uh, you know, you only live once. And so I entered into the rave scene and I was instantly swept away. I started taking ecstasy. I started taking acid and mushrooms. Um, I would leave the state and go chase rave parties uh, in Oregon and Washington over the weekends and I would come back and practice. So I would leave, uh, let's say I would leave Friday, be gone Saturday, come home Sunday, practice Monday, still on acid. Wow. Still under the influence of acid, I would be on the court uh, fully functioning. I, I don't know if it, you know, full, you know, on the court practicing. Um, and it was at that it was at that junction in my life where I decided or I got caught up in losing what was si losing sight of what was really important. Right. Like these drugs became my life. They became what was going on when I was under the influence was so powerful to me that it trumped everything like um, the music. Every, everything that I did revolved now around drugs, right? And so slowly but surely, uh, it started to show. And uh, when it became too much to contain or to lie about or to cover up, I decided that I was just going to quit. Uh, because nobody, nobody knew, nobody could tell me anything, really. Nobody could tell me you know, what was good for me. I was, I was really just self-centered and egoed and I had uh, these drugs were running my life at this moment. They were absolutely running my life. And so I quit college. 
I was good enough at this point in my life to quit college and go play overseas just because of the natural talent that God had given me. I was big. Uh, I was agile. You know, I was coordinated. Uh, I still had a lot of upside despite all of my drug use. But, you know, one thing about being addicted to drugs is that you trying to outrun an addiction is, is impossible. You really just got to put your foot on it. You can't outrun it. You got to put your foot on it and suffocate it. And so I, I tried to outrun it. I tried to keep outrunning it. And uh, so I went over to France, played ball for a little bit. And uh, that didn't work out. I was still chasing drugs. I Really what happened over in France was that I, I, I couldn't find the drugs that I wanted, right? Um, and I made the decision to self-sabotage what I had going on. Um, couldn't find the drugs. I couldn't feel the way I wanted to. I was withdrawing. And so I just stopped. I just stopped participating and they cut my contract. So you give up a scholarship at Idaho because you're at this point completely addicted to a variety of substances. What was your drug of choice? Um, honestly, my drug of choice at that, at that point was quite vast. It was anything I could get my hands on. It was never just one thing. It was ecstasy and acid, uh, shrooms and weed, Adderall and pain pills. It was anything I could get my hand on because I got swept up in, in this, this culture. There was this culture developing at, at the university at this time. And, you know, looking back now, I can really see how I got swept up, right? I'm a kid who, before basketball, grew up in the melting pot of skateboarding on the West Coast. And, you know, skateboarding gets a bad rap, but it's really an awesome thing. Um, but the st just stylistically, it didn't match. It, I never matched. I never matched with what I was projected to be. Like, I was the athlete that always hung out with the weird kids. I was the athlete who would skip basketball practice to go skateboard and have his mom come squealing in the parking lot in the car and yank him out by his ear and put him in the car and slit the door, shut the door to get, get me the basketball practice, right? And so when I left, I was not mature. I was not ready. I, I wasn't ready. Like, And I left, and what I did was I tried to find the same camaraderie, I think, and I tried to, to find the same stylistic values that I had back home in that, in that scene. And unfortunately, in Idaho, it was with all of these drugs. And me being immature at that moment created a perfect storm for me to opt out of an opportunity, a great opportunity, and take the easy road. And, and that's what I did. How old are you when you get the contract to go to France? I believe at this time I'm 22. Okay. And this is a paid contract? Yes. And as you put it, you're at some level trying to outrun your addiction, but you get there and you can't find the drugs that you're used to. What do you do? I can't remember his name. 
But the, so here I am in France. Uh, I'm the only American player on this team. And uh, while all of the guys are in the weight room and in the gym practicing, I am at the local bar speaking broken English and broken French, trying to find cocaine, pills, or weed. And uh, I'll never forget sitting in my little loft, being upset that all this little, this kid, this, this, this young guy that I knew that was like a, a local, you know, I don't want, I don't want to say bar rat, but just a local at the bars. All he could find me was this block hash that they would break up and put in tobacco and smoke. And I was furious. I was so angry that this guy couldn't give me or find me any kind of drugs. Like, and every time I smoked it, it gave me a headache. And, uh, that's when I, that's what I'm talking about. The decision that I made to just give up, like, I was withdrawing and instead of participating with my teammates, I was mad that I couldn't find the drugs. I was mad that I couldn't find drugs. And so I gave up that opportunity. So you disengaged from the team. Yes. And so what happened? They called me in the office. There was a, there was a verbal first. There was a verbal like, hey, you need to get it together. You know, people are saying that they're seeing you out late, blah, blah, blah. Okay, 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 okay. Uh, and finally, they just had enough, right? Uh, and they called me in the office, and the coach was there with the translator. And they said, they just sat down and explained that they didn't think that I was material for them, that I, that they no longer desired my abilities and that they were cutting my contract and that I would be going home the next day. So at this point, you've lost a scholarship, you've lost a paid gig to play internationally, you come back to the United States, and by the time that I meet you, you're essentially couch surfing, you're destitute. So walk us through the rest of that journey. How do you get there? So when I returned from France, um, I'll rem I remember a really defining moment for myself, and, and that was... At, at this point in my life, I, I had always had a second chance, right? Like I was sort of the golden kid where uh, you quit college, but they're going to give you a contract over overseas. Okay. So what my, my next thing is, okay, well, I'm just going to go home. I'm going to get some pills. I'm going to get some drugs and I'm going to go to a junior college and then I'm going to go back and play basketball. Right. I was living in a fantasy world at this moment. And I remember coming home and being told that I couldn't, I could no longer play in college because I had accepted money to play sport. So, you know, my, my career at this point was done. And I think at, at, at this point, my career was more that more of just like imagination. Like it was something that I was just like sort of living off of or, or, or telling myself that I was going to one day be successful at there, you know? Uh, and so when that door closed on me, uh, it was off to the races. I began using opiates heavily, heavily. Um, and had about a, a five or six year stint with 
uh, opiates, a, a vicious cycle. Um, I went on to, for the next four or five years after that, struggle with uh, cocaine and, and marijuana uh, and bouncing back. I, I was on methadone for uh, three years, suboxone on two years. It was a, it was it was a tough time for me. So during my uh, opiate opiate battle, um, there comes a time in an opiate user's life where. I often talk about, if you ever hear me talk about addiction, you'll hear me talk about lucid moments, right? And these moments are, they're, they're, they're fleeting, but they're very real. And they're moments where you realize that what you're doing just isn't working. It's almost like an out-of-body experience where you, you look at yourself and you say, well, hey, look, uh, I'm really living my life the wrong way, uh, but, but they're fleeting. And so there came, a, there came a time when I knew that I had to leave the opiates like I, I, I couldn't I could no longer do it. Uh, and this came with being kicked out and homeless on the streets. Right. I, I couldn't afford it. I didn't have a place to live. I was sleeping under a trampoline in my sister's backyard without her permission. Um, and so I I decided. Along with those factors that I needed to stop. And this is a this is a, a critical moment in my life because I stopped. I was able to stop and it wasn't easy. I I, I drank myself to sleep. I, I lived in rundown hotels. I slept in ashtrays. Um, I didn't have clothes all this time. And this this kicking this opiate addiction was probably like a month. I lived like this for a month. Uh, where I couldn't make it to the bathroom. Um, but one day it, it, it came to an end. It came to an end. And what I didn't know and what I wasn't ready for was the heavy, heavy depression that comes after an opiate addiction, right? The biggest fear, if you ever hear anybody who is contemplating or kicking around the idea of kicking opiates is, I want to kick, but I can't get through the physical, right? And that, that they don't have enough foresight or they haven't made it long enough in that addiction to actually get through the physical and then really begin to battle that demon, that depression. And I got through the physical, but I couldn't get through the depression. And that's when I started smoking methamphetamine. Uh, I substituted, you know, that classic addict move. I substituted uh, my opiate addiction for methamphetamine. And that is what ultimately led me to prison. How many years before you were caught? I want to say four or five. Here we are let's call it about 10 years, closer to eight, since you and I first met. You describe going to prison as one of the best things that's ever happened to you. Why do you say that? If I didn't go to prison, I don't think I would have changed. Prison was a enough of a shock and enough of us submerging into a situation that it, it woke me up. And to this day, I try my best to 
to pinpoint one specific day or, or, or one specific thing that helped me or that it saved my life. But it's crazy. Like my whole life, people have been telling me, hey, if you dedicate yourself, if you apply yourself to the things that people are trying to give you that you know are coming from a good place, you're going to succeed. Right. And I fought it. I fought it my whole life until I went to prison. It was only when I went to prison that I decided to take a step in another direction. And it was like a domino effect. It was, it wasn't effortless, but it was much easier than I thought to invest in the things that are going to give you long-term rewards versus investing in the things that are going to give you short-term rewards. My whole life, I'd been a short-term investor, right? It was wake up, get dope, smoke dope, go to sleep. There was never any planning. There was never any, if I do this today, at the end of the month, I'm going to have something to show for it. Or if I continue to move this way, if I continue to show up on time, have a smile on my face, say yes ma'am, no ma'am, treat other people with respect, uh, try to make people better around me. If, if I do those things every day, then I've really got a shot of being put in a program where they're going to say, or being, or being uh, considered for a first step act, right? Because your character underpins the things that are written in those in the, in, in, in the policies, right? This is what we're looking for. This is what we're looking for. Prison gave me a chance to believe in myself. And it's weird. And, and nobody will understand that. I, I hope people understand that. I hope that if there's somebody that's locked up, getting ready to be locked up, that they really understand that it's possible. It's not over. Like somewhere along the line, prison gave me hope in life. It gave me another chance. It was like, it was a reboot. It was a training ground, right? What am I going to practice today? Right. What The things you practice at are the things you get good at. In prison, I had a ch- I, 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 I was sober and I had the ability to ask myself, Do I want to get good at X or do I want to get good at Y? Do I want to get good at hanging out or do I want to get good at speaking? Do I want to get good at being out of bounds or do I want to be getting good at being recognized for being on time and helping other people, right? And so prison allowed me to begin practicing the things I need to live a pro-social life. And it's 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 awkward. It sounds weird. But prison gave me a reboot. Your sentence was on paper 10 years. Was that more or less than you imagined when the process started? Or in other words, what were you facing? I received a 10-year sentence. At the time I received my sentence, I was both happy and stricken. Like I, I knew that it was going to take a considerable amount of time to do what I needed to do. Right? I understood at this point that this is what it was going to take. And you hear, you hear that a lot, right? But, but 
it can be an authentic moment. And for me, it was a very authentic moment. So when I was handed that 120 months, a part of me was okay with it. A part of me knew that some major construction had to happen. Part of me knew that some major work needed to be done. And then there was the childish side of me who thought that, you know, this was too much and that I didn't deserve it. So the rough math that most people start trying to do when they receive a federal sentence is to say, well, I'll probably serve about 80% of this time, assuming I do everything right. Okay. Right. So 120 month sentence and they do the math and they say, well, I might get out in close to eight years. You in fact got out in seven years. Walk us through what you had to do, not just good conduct, but what else did you have to do to ultimately get out in seven years as opposed to the full 10 years? It's a really good question. I had to decide that uh, I needed change. And a big part of that change was accepting the fact that I was in my own way, right? That was the first thing. The very first thing was that realizing that I was where I was because of the decisions that I was making, right? And then secondly, I had to swim upstream in prison. I had to take advantage of every opportunity that they were offering. And in prison, there's, there's a sentiment, you know, we, we don't trust these people, right? But for me, there was a sort of desperation. There was a moment, there were moments that strung together for me that made me realize that this was my last shot, that I had to trust something other than myself, that I had to put my faith in the process. I'd never followed a process, right? And so once I decided to get out of my own way, I decided to hop in the river and start swimming upstream. And what that looked like was utilizing the drug program, actually being engaged, participating, utilizing the time that they set apart to not only uh, look inward, but figure out how I have affected the people in my life. I, I took that very seriously. And I applied for uh, a very prestigious job in the federal uh, prison system, which was the dental program. Uh, and I was awarded uh, that position. And that's a, that, that was a pretty big deal for me. That was a life-changing moment for me in prison. Uh, it was a moment where hard work, trusting the system, and having faith all aligned, and I was rewarded. It empowered me in so many different ways that it really, it really changed my life, right? It really changed my life. Uh, to put that in perspective, how, you were at FMC Fort Worth, yes. the Federal Medical Center in yes. Fort Worth, when you got this job. How many of those positions were even available? Uh, I believe there were three. Okay. You got one of three spots. They're highly coveted spots. Yes. And what did you get to do kind of day-to-day -day in that role? So on a day-to-day -day basis, I would shadow a doctor. Uh, we had an endodontist and a, a general dentist who did surgeries. And so I started off in the surgical field in the routine dental treatment. And then I moved my way to another doctor that I would shadow for the, for the latter half of the program and did... Uh, like endodontics, root canals, and all kinds of stuff. So it was really engaging. And really what it did was it showed me a different side of life, right? For, for the last 10 years of my life prior to going into prison, I had lived a life, you know, for lack of better terms, in the dark, right? I had chosen to 
not live in the life, not be pro-social, be anti-social, hang around people that were, you know, just counterculture, right? And all that time, I had people in my life telling me why, 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 why? And once again, I was in my own way, right? And I couldn't see it. So when I was accepted to that program and had the the just great reward or the great opportunity to, to shadow two doctors, two wonderful doctors, smart people. I'm talking about like smart. It began to transform me. It started changing the way I, th- I thought about things. I started, I started thinking highly of myself, higher of myself. I started, uh, my, my dialogue began to change. The way I spoke began to change, uh, the way that I treated people began to change. And, and I think the greatest thing is my self-confidence. My self-confidence really started to grow. And as I spent more time with them, I, I got smarter and I, I, I was just growing. It was, a, it was a moment to really grow in the craziest of places, right? Every day I had an opportunity to learn something new. And as long as I was out of my own way, I was able to do that. And it, and, it, and it just kept moving me forward. That's such a remarkable journey. And I talked to so many people who were facing a federal sentence that they're about to serve in very short order. And they feel so discouraged. And yet you're talking to me about a life that, yes, there were struggles. When you talk about swimming upstream at the prison, you're talking about you're not falling into the norms and the counterculture that exists even there. And that was hard, right? To put this in perspective, how many years had you served before you got this job? I believe it was two and a half, three. So it's two and a half to three years of you putting in the work, dedication, working all the programs and building up that level of trust to where they would give you this job. Yeah, really what happened, uh, Benson, was I had graduated the drug program And I was fully involved with it. I was hands-on not only with uh, the actual program and the structuring of the program, but the people, the new people who were coming in. I had become, uh, you know, the head orderly over there. So I was really involved in the unit. I ran my campaign in the light and it, it, it paid off. So one day I was at work and I got called. I was on a call out for dental and I looked at it and I was like, man, I don't have a cavity. You know, maybe I do. I don't know. Uh, so I went and they, they asked me, they said, Hey, listen, you have been, you have been selected or somebody has put your name in the bucket for this job. And, uh, I really couldn't believe it. And so like, you know, I went back and I, I said, boss, you know, Hey, is it okay if I do this? And they're like, look, and, and I think it was my boss, right? I, I, they're like, look, go learn some stuff. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Uh, it paid off for me doing the right thing, swimming upstream, uh, being involved. It, it all paid off. This question is really for a lot of our viewers and the people that I think you can help. But what did the first day at prison look like? What did you walk into? Because you had no idea of what the federal prison system would look like. It was intimidating. It was intimidating because I I knew I needed, I knew I needed to change. Like I knew that this was my last opportunity. 
And as I looked around, I didn't see, I, I saw very few people who were of the same mindset. And I instantly wanted to figure out how I could align or get to a better spot. It was, it was intimidating. You obviously found the right way. So what tips would you give someone who's facing that moment of, I'm trying to make the most of this. There's no one else like me around me. How do I get through this? You know, I can only speak from self-experience. And the truth is, is this, is that no matter who you are, you got people who love you. And you got people who want the very best for you, whether that's family or friends. And if you happen to find yourself struggling on your way to prison, county jail, chances are that somebody in that sphere of influence has told you that you're worth something. And you have probably either not believed in yourself or believed what they were doing. So at some point, you have to be serious with yourself and you have to ask yourself, what's important? What are my priorities? How bad do I want to change? Because I'm living proof that inside that fence, there's opportunities for you if you seek them out. They're willing to give you something to work with, but you have to put it, you have to put the work in. You have to put the work in. You cannot sit and wait for something to just come to you in there. And that follows in life too, right? So the, the, the lessons that I learned in prison now are the most beneficial lessons in my entire life. I'm bringing the lessons that I've learned inside that fence, outside of the fence, and I'm becoming successful every day. Every day I'm moving forward because I took the time to get away from what had got me there and I took long enough away from it to see what I really needed. And that was to take advantage of the opportunities that people afford you and to listen to the people who love you. I want our viewers to hear how you have done exactly that after you got out. So tell us what you're doing and the position you currently hold as compared to what you started off doing when you were first released. Yeah, that's an interesting journey. So uh, when I released, of course, I was eager to get a job, you know, uh, anything greater than 35 cents an hour seems attractive. And so, uh, which is I, what you got paid. Yes. Yes. Uh, big money. And so I took the first job that was handed to me and little did I know upon taking it, that it was the most despised job in the halfway house. Uh, it was sort of like the doom and gloom, like everybody needs a job but nobody wants to work at this place. But I happily accepted it because you know, I needed money and uh, I just felt like I had a lot to prove. Like, let's go get it. I wanted to go get it. I wanted to make it happen. And so I started out with about six or seven guys there. And this is a, uh, a bathtub and shower warehouse that is, takes a little bit of grit to work out, work at. It's dark, it's, it's full of fiberglass, it's musty. Soon everybody just kept quitting. And uh, I was reminded in those moments when they were quitting, why it was so important not to quit. Because every time I quit, I either look back and, and, and realize that I should have stayed or I realized that I miss a moment, right? And so, so I kept working hard. And 
I did the, the probably the dirtiest job in the warehouse, which was demolding. And I did that for about four and a half months. And then they called me into the office and they told me that they wanted to interview me for the quality manager position. And when they told me that, I was just like, what, really? And uh, I said, of course, you know, of course, yeah, of course. And so they interviewed me and uh, two days later, I got the quality manager job. And the major, the major reason or, or their, their main reasoning for giving me the job was that they noticed that I was willing to do the job. I was willing to see, I was willing to get through a tough time. And it resembles my journey, right? And it underpins the way I live my life now. I am more than ever fascinated with the concept of hard work. I'm, because I know, I know, I know, I know it pays off, right? I know it pays off. And uh, it's an amazing feeling. So now I'm the quality control manager at Aquatic. Uh, I went from pulling parts to sitting in an office and uh, I'm still learning. Absolutely. You empowered yourself and you made the decision to, for the first time in your life, as you put it, take advantage of opportunities, something only you could control, right? For all the people who are looking at federal sentences and feeling hopeless, you're reminding them that the one thing they can control is how they respond to everything around them, right? It's not for a lack of opportunities to do the wrong thing, right? There were plenty of paths you could have taken in prison that would have resulted in a very different outcome. More time, certainly not the enlightened path that you've decided to go down. And even in the halfway house, when people get out, you've seen people stumble, make mistakes, fall into old habits, right? But what you did by empowering yourself is something that you continue to develop every day and you continue to do so now that you're out. Um, and I think that's just so compelling to anyone listening, not just someone looking at a federal prison sentence, but anyone who's listening to say, hey, if Chris could overcome all that he's overcome and go into federal prison, come out a better man and make more of his life, then whatever challenge I'm facing, I can overcome that too. We have so much that I hope to unpack with you in the future, but I want to end with this. What do you see for yourself in the future? Right now, I'm looking forward to uh, building healthy relationships, restoring broken ones, uh, becoming more involved with my church, possibly sharing my testimony. That's a want of mine. Uh, I'm also a personal trainer, so uh, I like to help people transform. Fitness is a real big part of my life, so I like helping people achieve their goals. That's a big thing uh, for me moving forward is to, you know, uh, help myself by helping others. Um, I'm looking forward to a bright future in my job. Uh, I'm learning every day there. I'm excited. It's new. It's challenging. And uh, I'm optimistic about my future. 
Thank you. Chris, really, thank you for sharing. It's, I think, just so valuable to hear from someone who has gone through the journey that some are looking at, but to share your story that there's always hope if you can dedicate yourself to doing what needs to be done. And you're, you're the master of your own ship, right? For so long in your life, you let circumstances or addictions dictate where you were going. And for the first time in your life, you've, you've decided the path that you're going down. And I'm so proud of you. Thank you very much. Absolutely.